This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Mortgage and Housing Meltdown, The Legacy of Greed, and the author, Kenneth Clark. And Kenneth joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kenneth. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Nice to be with you. Well, let me read a couple of things that you've written about this mortgage and housing meltdown. You say this, this is the first book written by a mortgage expert that explains what really happened in the housing crisis and the mortgage meltdown in a manner that is readily understandable to the average person. It explains the government's role in the meltdown and the inadvertent damage being done to the credit scores of many regardless of whether they've ever been late with a mortgage payment. And it goes over a number of alternatives that will allow us to repair a good amount of the damage in the shortest possible time. Well, what a mess, right? (laughs) You're not kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And I think your subtitle says it all, The Legacy of Greed. Now, give us the short version, (laughs) if possible, of how all this happened. Well, I I think the the shortest version is is that somewhere along the line, the uh, uh, Wall Street uh, needed to, I guess, prop up... uh, (laughs) You know, profits and so on, and uh, they came out with a mortgage that was based solely on uh, a FICA score. Uh, there was no uh, income required on a lot of the loans, no no assets required. There were called stated loans, and based on previous statistics that had been manipulated forever, uh, that weren't true. Uh, the uh, FICA score they could point to and say, oh, if he has a 660, the chances of him paying are this percent and so on. And um, so they took this loan and I guess got the uh, SEC to, you know, to, to rate it and then got another company, uh, Clayton, to also uh, kind of back up their their uh, position, which they did, and this loan came out. And it was, it was such that... Uh, you know, unless you were going to call people liars on every loan that you took in and didn't believe them, you were getting loans in that, you know, people who just started at a nail salon making 20000 a month. And uh, we put in a lot of what we call overlays to try to, to avoid that, but still there was enough people out there that, you know, could say that that job after 20 years could make that amount of money. But it still wasn't, it still wasn't a... Uh, an accurate picture of their of their finances. You know, one, we're basing, as I said, on gross, what they were telling us their gross was. Also basing it on what they told us they had as liquid assets, which, you know, may or may not have been true. And so we, we based the approval on that. And in, in most cases, the investors who bought these loans would send somebody in, a Clayton or another group, uh, to, to do a cursory review of them and decide which ones they would buy. And in most cases, it was a 
a hefty percent of them, you know, 80, 90 percent of them that they would buy. And, uh, and they were paying quite handsomely for these loans. So we would sell them these loans. And um, the unusual part of it was that, you know, they had your finance, financials as a company. Um, uh, they knew what you were worth, meaning my company or other companies they were dealing with. And even, even as things got bad uh, in the, you know, 2007 and continued to get worse in 2008, uh, and you owed, you know, 10 times what your net worth was, they still wanted you to sell them loans with no, no possible way of having any recourse against you. Um, so that was another, uh, area that, uh, just seemed, you know, just, just kooky. It just didn't make any sense. So I started to do a lot of investigation and, uh, basically semi-retired about a year before the, the crisis, I guess, hit its last loan in November, I guess, of 2008 and started just, uh, trying to understand how we could get from, where, 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 where I had been in 79 when I started up to this point uh, in, you know, 80, uh, 2007. And it was just a, we'd gone through it once before with the alt business, but it, it quickly went away and uh, firea and uh, the savings and loan meltdown happened during that same period. So, it kind of uh, didn't have very long legs, so it went away and kind of didn't come back until 10 years or more later. But other than that, we'd never seen anything like this. And we also saw people who were able to buy investor properties, which was really the only way that a, uh, an individual uh, could could uh, gain any wealth in real estate other than their own home was to duplicate that. You know, it's, it's, it's the old saying, even the mortgage business, the only way I can, I can make a lot of money in, the, in this business is to multiply myself. One loan officer is good, but 200 is better. So they decided that they uh, were going to continue to buy homes. And uh, like I, I, I've said before, there was this one gentleman selling 800 homes a month. And they were all investor properties. So that that end of the business is what really propelled this this uh, this uh, increase. And and by having such a demand, builders were were adding on anything they wanted as extras to these homes. So you were getting such inflated prices, things that were be uh, bought at uh, the beginning of the subdivision for three hundred would be selling for six hundred when the subdivision was. Was finished, so people would, you know, flip loans. Um, very few of them wanted to actually take possession of these homes because the rents wouldn't cover uh, what they were paying for them. So there's a lot of flipping being done, and eventually that that came to an end when that you know first group of uh, homes that couldn't be flipped, things started to move backwards, and liquidity slowed down, and people stopped buying, and all of a sudden, really within a day. I talked to maybe 25 different companies that got letters from their particular investors they were selling to asking for their money back, the money that they owed them, knowing, knowing that they could never get the money back, but, but certainly the letter was sent out, and that was the end of the, the all business. It just ended literally in one day. And, um, again, it was a year probably... Uh, after we had stopped doing it, we had gone into FHA and we had actually gone to clients that we had 
uh, done business with and come up with a program where we could try to help uh, help the client get a new loan, but that the investor would have to be willing to, you know, give it to them at today's value based on today's appraisal and, and based on uh, the gentleman's real income and real <clears throat> real assets. So it became a full doc loan, obviously, which is what FHA is. And, um, you know, that would be their only way to, to, to come out of this with any kind of, uh, you know, money that was uh, uh, available. Now, a lot of loans have been sold and have been put into securities, and these, these places had no real risk with those loans. It was loans that were on uh, the books when this ended, which were billions and billions of them, probably trillions of them, and uh, those were the loans that they were having their, their, their biggest problem with because they, they had full amount of cash into them and they had to get rid of them. So most of the places agreed to do this, from mortgage insurance companies to uh, Bear Stearns, the city, to uh, there was almost anybody we sold to was willing to put this program into place. And, and later this program, you know, was named H4H and had a lot of different uh, 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 situations of, uh, when I say situations, I mean that a lot of things similar to what I was doing, but always had a few uh different criteria that made the loan from FHA standpoint almost impossible to do with certain ratios and all. My program was just a simple full doc loan. Did you qualify? Could you make your payments? And were you, you were not going to pay over the value of the house. So it became a, you know, a normal loan. But um, FHA has since tried to uh, make, make things more uh, simpler uh, in some of the programs they've come out with, but it's it's a little bit too too little too late. There's too many people that are have left their homes, they've moved out, they've turned in the keys, they've gone into bankruptcy, they've gone into foreclosure, and um, so you know it's 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 something that we have to we have to move quickly on a solution that uh, takes away uh, the. I guess the in one of the chapters it's called "Get Out of Jail Free," uh, and it really is where we have to almost say, "Okay, this happened. It happened to so many people, and that we've got to somehow give everybody a, a, a second chance. And this will be their second chance. It's not going to be a third and fourth chance, but this is their second chance, and give them a loan that's based on uh, real value, what they can afford." And get them moving in the right direction if they want it. Uh, and if they don't, then you know they may have consequences. They should have consequences. But if they if they want to do this, move forward with it. And uh, by doing so, the government has so many different ways of making or paying for this that instead of just giving out part money and giving, giving away free money to, to people, lending at 0% interest rate and you know, paying 4% for you to just work on a foreclosure, there's a lot of things they can do to actually bring in money that could pay for this, this particular uh, debacle that we're in. And uh, credit scoring should, should be taken away. Uh, automated underwriting should be taken away. Now, automated underwriting can be a tool that you use to 
give you an idea, but the problem is it's only as good as the information put into the system, and we find that a lot of times the information put into the system isn't correct. So we have loans that get approved that shouldn't have gotten approved. But loans should be back to the 80s when, we, when you looked at the whole picture of the borrower and you understood exactly what they paid and you got more into their finances and then decided that person can afford that house. Because ultimately, it's just going to come back to the uh, same situation is going to come back. Because we don't have the liquidity to have second trust, to have 125 we used to have. You have to be able to afford your payment based on what you net and what you have left over at the end of the month. If you don't, there isn't somebody outside you know, waiting to just hand you money each month to to borrow against this, this, this equity that's growing. It's not there. And frankly, I don't think it's going to be there for a decade or two. Well, so, it, do, it doesn't seem possible. Uh, obviously, the uh, debt that the government is in, uh, is this kind of program giving people a second chance? Uh, someone has to eat the first chance, and can we afford the second chance? I mean, I know you've got decades of experience in the mortgage business, so you see things that the average person doesn't see. Well, I think I think there is a. Uh, uh, I mean, again, if the second chance was was given a lot earlier, we would have a lot less problems. One of the problems is they raised the loan limit on FHA. Well, that wasn't a very bright thing to do, but it was the, you know, because of uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they're trying to. So they, they're, I believe, they're lowering the, the they're going to lower the loan limits back to be FHA loans. They're going to. Um, uh, the debenture rate, which is something that is just absurd, that they pay you to foreclose on a loan uh, more than they pay you to collect money on a loan, makes no sense, uh, and would save the government billions in dollars. Um, uh, the value of the house is the value of the house. So the problem is not going to change by not giving the second the second chance. It's going to end up selling for what it's worth. What happens is if you keep the people in the house and you give them a second chance, you save anywhere between, they estimate, 12 to 14%. That's with commissions and other costs that you would have if you were selling the house. So right there alone, if you take the number of houses and multiply it, that's another, those are billions of more dollars. So when you sit down and you do the actual math on this, and it's, you know, we've, we've done it and we've looked at it, it is, it is, it is something that you almost have to do. Is, is it the best situation? Should have happened earlier? Yes. Uh, can the government afford it? I don't think it has any choice but to try to afford it. But certainly there's things that they can stop having to pay for that will help, help make this much more affordable than, than it would be if you didn't do anything. Because foreclosure, we're netting about 60% of the real value. Of the property, 60, 50 percent, depending on the area that you that you're you're in. Some areas a lot worse than others. In this particular situation, you're gonna you're gonna net about 95 percent of the current value, but yet you're not going to be paying out uh, billions of dollars and other costs that you shouldn't have to pay out. And um, th- th- those are the things that the average person doesn't know about and I tried to explain a little bit of that in in this book and certainly there'll be there'll be others that will come along that'll get into more detail but um, it's it's just a shame that uh, a person uh, the the other side of this is as you help people today 
their credit scores are ruined. Well, it's supply and demand. If you don't have the people to buy homes, you don't have the ability to sell them, and what do prices do? They go the other direction, and that's just simple economics. And that's what's happening right now, is that too many people are being locked out of being able to to buy homes based on situations where they may have gotten help on this loan, and now they want to take advantage of selling their house because it has a, a loan at current value, but they go to buy another house and their, their credit scores don't work. So they're just kind of stuck in the house they're in. So they can't take advantage of moving to another location with a better job. Uh, so that, that in itself is a, is, a, is a problem that is causing a tremendous uh, employment pro- uh, problems, and that's why unemployment is continues to be a a real issue in this country because people can't, you know, not everybody's uh, equity in their house is paper equity. You know, they say up to fifty percent or more is actual real dollar equity, real real money that was put into that house, and people can't afford to lose that money. Uh, not only lose it, but actually have somebody come after you for that money, which they can do, and they're starting to do now with the default judgments and stuff like that. So it's, it's something that it, it has, something has to be done. So it sounds like, know? it sounds like it's back to basics, right? I mean, we've got well, to that's get what, what it really is. It's back to basics. And right. And, and, uh, and that's what your book is uh, really explaining. Exactly. I mean, that's just, let, let's get back to doing loans the way we used to do them. Let's forget about, uh, you know, we, we can't keep pointing fingers at uh, who calls this and expect whoever calls this, if you, if you could come up with one person, they're not going to have the money to fix the problem anyway. And let's, let's figure out a way to get people back where homes are, are, are a, a place to live and that they're, they're, they're not stopping you from taking jobs. They're not, they're not uh, if, if, if you find a, a deal or you find something that makes sense, if your house will sell, you should be able to move into it. But from this point on, you have to you have to stand up and take responsibility and make your payments. Well, Kenneth, tell us how to get your book, the title of it, The Mortgage and Housing Meltdown, The Legacy of Greed. Well, you can get it at Barnes & Noble, of course. You can get it at Amazon. Uh, it's going to be on all the e-book, uh, uh, you know, Nook and... Uh, Kindle and uh, places like that shortly, and uh, all the different stores that uh, Barnes and Noble, Borders, uh, Books a Million, uh, Hudson, um, we could go on and on and on. Uh, where it's, it's going through the process, I guess, to uh, get them to uh, put it in there, which is a much longer process since I'm not a I'm not an insider uh, book writer. I'm just a, a mortgage banker and. Uh, I think the the ones that are selling are the ones that people don't understand, and certainly I've I've read probably fifteen of them doing during this year that it took me to do this book, and and, and I had a hard time understanding exactly what they were talking about. But uh, uh, hopefully, it'll get in there. Right now, a few colleges have taken it as required reading because of I think the simplicity of it, that it's uh, a book that's understandable, and that. Uh, since people don't have uh, the, you know the knowledge of this particular uh, uh, industry or what really goes on, this book gives, you know, gives them the basics uh, at the first time around. And then I will again. I've been asked to anyway continue to add on to this you know down the road. But this is the first shot at it. And so far, every professor who has read this 
has asked if, uh, you know, basically asked me if would it be all right if he carries it in his classroom. And, of course, you know, I'm flattered by that, and, and the answer is always yes. <laughs> Resounding yes. Well, we appreciate you, Kenneth, joining us on Author Talk. Much needed explanation and also solutions to this mortgage and housing meltdown. Uh, thank you for being with us, Kenneth. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And uh, anytime you would uh, like to talk, I'm here. And uh, if things change and uh, something interesting comes up or some program comes out, I'll certainly uh, be in touch with you to see if you have interest in sharing it with your audience. That was Kenneth Clark. He is the author of his book, The Mortgage and Housing Meltdown, The Legacy of Greed. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Light of the World, and the author is Patrick K. Cannon, and Kevin joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Steve. Good to have you with us, Kevin, and we're going to uh, just listen to uh, some of your words that you've written about your book just to uh, set the theme of our discussion. You say this, what you are about to read is my own personal eyewitness testimony of the miracle God worked in my life. When my world came crashing apart and I lost my life as I knew it for the sake of following Jesus Christ. You also say this. This is a true story about what happened to me. If you cannot believe it or understand it all at this time, I can certainly understand. I would have been skeptical myself prior to my own personal experience. Please, at least give it a chance. So this is a personal experience, that way God changed your life. We're going to get into some of the details of where you were before this miracle happened and your struggles and now what has occurred to you. Uh, uh, can you give us some of the, I guess, I guess you had uh, hit rock bottom, huh? That's correct. Uh, June 3rd, 2005, I came home from work. And my wife and I were having a lot of stress in our marriage, and we had a, uh, a two-year-old, nearly three-year-old little girl, and uh, we both tried everything I think that we knew of to try to fix our problems. Uh, from a human standpoint, we both worked hard, tried to uh, make a nice home together, reached kind of our wit's end, I would say, and so uh, she told me that she wanted a divorce uh, on June 3rd, 2005, and I was actually a little bit glad to hear that because I kind of wanted out too, but I didn't know how to get out because I didn't believe in divorce. So the fact that she wanted out gave me an excuse, I guess you might say. And uh, so I went out that night and spent the night in a hotel, 
and uh, did some things that I'm ashamed of, but uh, kind of trying to escape from my pain, uh, while at the same time um, trying to anticipate maybe some some uh, better life in the future. Uh, the next day I got up and I had a headache and felt a lot of different emotions, but I felt guilt, I felt anger towards God for my problems, for my marriage in shambles. And then later that day on June 4th, I finally went back to my home where it was an empty house. My wife and my daughter were gone. And I was alone in my bedroom and uh, the sun was setting. And I was just looking out the out the window uh, at the sunset. It was a beautiful sunset, I remember. And I, I started to have tidal waves of, of regret um, over a lot of things that I'd done wrong and especially my own sins. And I believe God was convicting me that uh, that I was a lost soul and I needed help. Complete desperation, I cried out for Jesus to save me. And I was crying just like a little boy or a baby um, with tears pouring down my cheeks. I remember crying myself to sleep. And then the next day I woke up and I I just felt totally different than just that night before. I felt well-rested. I felt energetic. I felt joyous. I had a, a different look. Of my, you know, my face looked different. It looked kind of like, you know, kind of like I'd had a facelift or something. I looked happier, and uh, I just felt so relieved and clean and pure. And I, I knew that that I'd been forgiven of my sins. You mentioned uh, just a moment ago that. You were upset with God. You were blaming God. Uh, I, you hear this often right. from people. Why do you think you went there? Why do people go there? Christians go there. They blame God. Sure. Well, for me, I, I claim to be a Christian. You know, I named the name of Jesus all my life. Um, I went to church regularly, and I, I grew up Catholic, and um, I said many prayers, and but the problem was I had some secret sins in my life that nobody else really knew about. It was just between me and God, and I I guess uh, he finally said, you know, Kevin, if you're going to say that you believe in my son, then you need to walk in my ways, even when nobody else sees what you're doing. And um, I'm a pretty smart guy. I, I'm an ophthalmologist, board-certified MD, um, and I kind of figured out a way to cover up some of the things that I did in secret um, that nobody else ever had to know about, and I could just, it could just be my problem. Um, and I'm sure we've all got things like that. But, uh, yeah, the day, that, the day after she told me she wanted out of the marriage, I guess I failed to see the plank in my own eye, so to speak, as we read about in the Bible. Um, I kind of pointed fingers at other people uh, for, you know, sort of blaming others for things that I myself was guilty of. And I think a lot of us have a tendency to do that. If you read the scriptures about Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, they were very, very critical and pointed out flaws in him that they were guilty of. So I would consider myself sort of a a self-righteous type of person prior to being saved that that day, where I was a perfectionist. Everybody else needed to kind of catch up with me, you know, and and live up to my standards. 
But when I compared myself to the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus, I was a filthy wretch, and he finally convicted me of that, and I needed to be cleaned by him, and only by him can that happen, uh, by accepting the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross and letting the, his blood wash our sins away and being born again. So you learn that there's much more to being a Christian than just being a churchgoer. Right. It requires just surrender. Say, okay, God, I, I've tried to do the church thing, and I've, I've read my Bible. I, I do all these good things. Reminds me of the, the story in the Bible, uh, I believe, of the Pharisee uh, who was praying out in public so that everybody could see him. And then you have the tax collector, I believe, who finally uh, just bowed the knee and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus knew that that tax collector was the humble person who finally realized his own need for the Savior and not, not a prideful Pharisee who said, look at all my good deeds and my good works and how I pray in public and and I fast and do all these things for everybody else to see. Jesus is more impressed with the humble person who does all those things in secret and doesn't talk about them and who uh, finally submit to his authority and say that the only way that you can get to heaven by grace, not by works. And once you have been saved, you should have good works because the Holy Spirit who dwells within you is the one who inspires you to do those good works. Now, your book is some 50 pages, a little over 50 pages long, and it's, of course, uh, a lot about your history, what you've gone through, and in this miraculous uh, change of heart, this uh, miracle in your life. But you also, right. at the beginning, have an extensive uh, poem, uh, obviously very yeah. different than, you know, the written word uh, in prose. Here we have this poem... And just tell us a little bit why you wrote that and what you were feeling, why you did it that way. You know, that's tough to explain because I am not a poet by nature. I, I never really wrote much poetry growing up in all my education. And that's what's so amazing about that poem is because I don't really take credit for it. I feel like God gave me those words to, to put down. Now, if you read through the Psalms in the Bible, uh, all those heartfelt Psalms by David, that I think were designed to be uh, sung in a song, oftentimes. Uh, it's, just, it's just an outcry from the heart of that, that, that uh, desperate uh, plea for help or a cry for help out to God. Um, and it's, it's your heart of hearts that you're trying to express in words. And uh, one of my scriptures that I've, really enjoy uh, is that the, that the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, and he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God, and that's from Romans. That, I felt like that was the Holy Spirit uh, giving me those words to, to write in that poem, almost like Jesus was talking to me himself, saying, write this down, Kevin. I just felt compelled to put it down. And again, that, that those writings were going to be just private. They were going to be put in a, a secret drawer somewhere to share with people after I was dead and gone, kind of 
put in there with my will and some other private uh, private things. But after one thing led to another, I felt like God wanted me to share it with as many people as are willing to, to listen and read. Um, and then, you know, those miracles you mentioned, that was supposed to be kind of the uh, the climax of the story, really. And that's in the second part of the book. It's easy to get caught up in those, but I don't really want those to be the focus. I want the focus to be on the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. Yeah, we won't get into the details of uh, what you saw, but it's interesting to me, you being uh, an eye doctor, an ophthalmologist, and surgeon, and dealing with sight and seeing and... Right. And and you saw something that changed your life. I mean, it dramatically, what you saw dramatically changed your life. That is absolutely correct. I'll never forget it. Ephesians, book of Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul, um, Ephesians 6.12, I think would be the most appropriate scripture. Um, and I'm just going to read it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then 13 reads, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And so, that's exactly right. We are in a, we are in a war. It is a spiritual war. Uh, there really are... Uh, there really is, you know, there really is a God in heaven. Uh, he really did have a son, Jesus, who died on on the day the Bible says, and, and on the third day he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And there really is a devil, and the devil hates people. He hates uh, all of us who were created in God, God's image. And the devil wants to take us down. He wants to capture our soul and and keep it in chains. And after we leave this world, he wants he wants to take as many souls to hell with him as he can. And Jesus loved us so much that he came to earth, uh, born of a virgin, and he grew up without sin. He was the only perfect man who ever lived. Uh, he was both God and man at the same time. It took God's perfect sacrifice on the cross uh, to rescue sinful man, uh, just like I, I was. And I'm still not perfect, but I know that I've been redeemed, and I know there is a spiritual war. And why he chose me to witness the events that I did, I, I have no idea. And it's been quite a uh, very strange thing to live with. I think a lot of people think that I'm crazy. But, you know, it's February 22nd, 2011. Uh, today is George Washington's birthday, our first president of the United States. If you look at the National Mall in Washington, D.C., from above, if you look at those monuments and the way they were designed and constructed, they, those, that mall forms the shape of a cross. And if you come from the east and you, you're, you're heading west, you will see a, a cross. And uh, I don't know how many people realize that anymore, but the United States was was built on Judeo-Christian principles, and all people are certainly welcome to live here, but uh, I was taught that, that uh, 
America was built on the rock of Jesus Christ. And I wish we would all wake up to that fact and uh, and help spread the gospel throughout the world. I believe that's what we're called to do, and to reach out and love others who, who don't believe in Jesus and who may disagree with our beliefs. And I, if people could only experience the joy of being forgiven of their sins and knowing that they are going to heaven, that is my... my uh, my main mission now. It's fun to help people see better uh, with their eyes, but it, it's more fun whenever you help somebody's spiritual sight be uh, uh, help somebody gain spiritual sight, where they can they can see that God created this world. It's beautiful, but it's got a lot of problems, as we all know. It's a fallen place, and we need Him to restore this world to paradise. We we need the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm ready. I'm ready for, <laughs> I'm ready for heaven. Who's not? <laughs> and there's a saying I heard somebody say that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And you have to die to your sin and be born again to go to heaven. Well, the title of the book is The Light of the World. The author is Patrick K. Cannon. Kevin, tell us how to get your book. Well, if you Google uh, The Light of the World, uh, A Testimony of Jesus Christ, that's one way to find it. Um, The ISBN number is 978-145-202. Six three six seven, and so if you Google that number, it is available in lots of different places all over the world, uh, in different languages, and it's also available as an ebook if you go directly to Author House's website, www.authorhouse.com, and you type in the title "The Light of the World: A Testimony of Jesus Christ." Uh, you can get that as an ebook as well downloaded to your computer thank you kevin thanks for being with us on author talk you're very welcome thank you for having me and may god bless you that was patrick k cannon he is the author of his book the light of the world you're listening to author talk we'll be back right after these messages So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Life in Ethiopia, Historical and Religious Highlights of a 2,000-Year-Old African Dynasty. And the author is Job K. Savage, and Job joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Job. Hello. How are you, sir? 
Well, first of all, we want to just kind of set the stage here, and I'm going to read a couple of things that you have written about your book. You say this, Of all the many African countries that I have worked in, Ethiopia is the most interesting and unique. Aside from Egypt, it is the oldest and has a recorded history written in Giz. It is the oldest Christian empire in the world and one of the rare places where mankind is said to have first begun. Well, you spent a couple of years back in the 70s in Ethiopia, but just one of many, many countries that you visited and worked in. You were involved with agriculture. You have a Ph.D. in economics. And for a man who's at the young age of 96 right now... You've, you gotta keep you gotta keep moving if you right. don't the train will run over you. <laughs> you you keep moving and and this has been I guess a uh, just labor of love to write this book about a place that meant so much to you about Ethiopia. Absolutely, I, I you, you I, I don't I don't intend to get rich writing this book, but I have had fun writing it. Well, it's uh, always great to, I believe, to document history. We get it from different points of view. What I have tried to do, I've tried to pick out not just history, but the unique history. I've I've tried to get things that, uh, you know, that everybody doesn't know about, never heard about, and that sort of thing. That's what I've tried to do in this thing, and I, I, I have an attempt to give a complete history of the country, and I don't. I think that would be too boring. Well, it's interesting to think that this is the oldest Christian nation in the world. Yeah, that's right. And, and Christianity here, you see, started from the top down. Most of most of the places in the world where we have uh, uh, Christian religion, it started at, at the bottom and worked its way up. But here, the emperor, the emperor decided that. Uh, Ethiopia should be Christian, so he adopted the Christian religion, and then he sort of managed to impose it, I guess you might say, in a way on the rest of the people over there. It's a Coptic form of uh, of uh, Christianity. It's uh, it, and it, at some point in the book, I talk about one emperor that tried to change the whole thing back to Catholic. He wanted to, he wanted to have a Catholic. Uh, anyway, we'll get to that later, but uh, I thought that was interesting. It didn't work, by the way. Well, the influence of the Christian religion on Ethiopia, Ethiopia, as you say, was helpful at times, but also harmful at other times. Uh, Tell us about what you discovered with the way priests took advantage. Well, the the priest uh, over there just, you know, the world is made up of, uh, and this, this was designed that way, I think the Lord designed it that way, sort of. Everybody has some greed in them, and if we if we didn't have greed of uh, one way or the other, we we probably wouldn't have a world. So these uh, priests over there, uh, not all of them now, you understand, but too many of them, I think, they would uh, they would offer to pray a person's way into heaven when they, one of their ancestors died or something of that type. And they do some other priestly duty, and they charge them for it. And uh, I found that there were times when uh, when some of these priests were greedy enough and ambitious enough, or whatever you want to call it, that they would, in a matter of three or I say five years or so, 
they had managed to accumulate enough money from charging people to get people into heaven and, <laughs> and that sort of thing that they could retire. Now, that was the bad part about it. And then, on the, on the other hand, uh, there were some good things. The, the religion uh, uh, was very helpful to people over there. And as a matter of fact, this is strange, you know, but some of those churches would have as many as 200 priests in one church. Now, can you believe that? Now, I don't know how they managed to work out the, the duties, but uh, they did. And at one time, there was 25% of the country, I think, uh, at least, was was working for the, for the uh, ministry. Now, some of the problems that come up about this thing is that the emperors over there, of course, controlled all the land. They they owned it right up to the time Haile Selassie was was uh, overthrown, uh, two thousand years later. But uh, they these these uh, uh, dictators had had the authority, you see, to allocate the land out, and they were constantly being pressured by the church to give them more and more land and. And uh, so at one time, there was 25 or 30 percent of the people working for the church over there, believe it or not. Now, that 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 had its good good things and some of its bad. I mean, they would have to take back land from them once in a while because they, they just got too much. i tell you one thing that it did do. It did create a country over there of churches. They have some beautiful churches in that country. And they have some beautiful monasteries that were uh, uh, resulted from the fact that it was a Christian empire. And so when you go over there to travel, that's one of the things you really want to do is to see some of those wonderful churches. I think they've got more churches than any other country that I know of uh, anywhere, certainly in Africa. Well, Ethiopia, uh, according to your book, is has the longest ruling dictator in Africa. The, uh, yeah, that was Haile that was Haile Selassie. And that, that was Haile was Selassie. He, he was there he, when you were there, right? He was there. Uh, yes, he was. He was in fact in fact what 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 I was doing over there, I was uh, I was brought over there to sort of be a, an advisor to one of his uh, his minister of agriculture. That's what I was I was over there to do. And uh I never did really get to meet him officially, but I did get have him come by my office window one day down a little street, and I could have reached out and touched him, you know, small little man with a cape that uh, flowing all behind him and everything. He'd been over to some some affair there that was kind of right near our office. But he, uh, uh, he, he was taken out. Uh, I think it was along about July of 1974, if I remember now. We had left just shortly before that, but uh, I, I I did get to see him. Now, I'll talk about him in, at some point in here because I think he was uh, uh, perhaps the most interesting of all the, all the rulers that they had. And, uh, and I, not that I, I think he was the benevolent dictator to end all, uh, but he did do some things for the country that some of the others didn't do. 
And that goes back to this divine right theory of emperor succession, doesn't it? It's the only African nation to adopt that. Why why do you think that Ethiopia, their culture, adopted this divine right theory of emperor succession? Well, I think perhaps one of the reasons... Ethiopia had contact with uh, some of the Western world early, and they they knew about the uh, the type of dynasties that uh, they had in those countries, and that divine right theory, you know, was prevalent over in Europe, and so I think they just adopted it from that, and it, it just so happened that uh, Solomon and and the Queen of Sheba and all the came along at about the right time, so they just latched on to it and and uh, decided that that was going to be their divine right theory uh, support base, and, and that's the way it worked out. They did have one period in there, I think of about two, three hundred years, where they had some uh, uh, another group that was not... Uh, not based on that particular divine right theory. If it was, it was stretched to ways to, to make it work out that way. But they were the black Jews, the Philosians, that uh, ruled in uh, for for about uh, two or three hundred years, I think. There, they they just took over and took that Salamic rule or away from from. But other than that, it it, it continued on all that. And, of course, this kind of rule, I guess, for the history of Ethiopia, it's been a very, very poor country, a lot of poverty. Absolutely. That, that, I, think it, I think this is one of the things that I, as an economist, I kind of I, I got away from the history a little bit, and I, I condemned that several different ways over there. They, uh, they, 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 this was a whole basis for the dynasty system, you see. And uh, most other countries that had a dynasty, along about, uh, I'd say about 11, 1200, something like that, places like England and France and all those places, they had the same type of thing. And it was a method to control people and, and, and put the control in the hands of a few people. But they had... They had the good sense to get rid of it in uh, in Europe, uh, along about eleven, twelve hundred. And Ethiopia, that... Ethiopia, no, they just kept going, flying through, and uh, it, it's a way of controlling people. Is what it is. And according to your stories, uh, that kind of poverty uh, creates very difficult situation at times because people uh, just surround you, don't they, and are, yeah. are begging because they have nothing. They have that. That's exactly right, and that's what what finally uh, back in '74, the situation got so bad over there that uh, the, the people began to rebel just like they're rebelling now all, all over the Middle East. It's the same thing. They they decided that uh, they'd had enough of this benevolent dictatorship, and uh, so they were going to do something about it. And one thing that helped that along a great deal, the United States had a lot of people, uh, students, from uh, Ethiopia that were educated over here in our country. And there were some of them educated in England and France and Germany, and even a few of them in Russia for some reason. But anyway, these people 
when they came over to our, our country and to these other more industrialized countries and more advanced countries, they began to realize that things were just not right in their country. And that's when that's when this rebellion began to flare up over there. And you know what? I find, if I understand it right, I thought they had worked it all out. I thought things had quieted down and and uh, they were out ahead of the game and all that. The more I look now at uh, the history of the thing, the more I find out that they are back, about like they were in the beginning. This man who is president, this, uh, uh, his name is Malay Zimbabwe. He's been president for 19 years. Now, that's no way to have a democracy, of effective democracy. And that's what was that's what's happened over there. And what is the uh, main industry of Ethiopia? Well, agriculture is the main many, and they and they're, I guess their most prolific crop, the one that they can make the most money out of, is coffee. If you've never had any Ethiopian coffee, you miss something. It's 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 delightful coffee, and it's grown in a few places over there. And they have developed that pretty high. It also has a, I tell you, it has a great potential, I think, for tourism. Uh, there's so many wonderful things that you can see over there, and so many stories and all that uh, that are of great interest to people. Well, if if they could just develop their tourist infrastructure over there. And if they could just quit fighting each other and scrapping over everything so things could quiet down, it, it, it'd be one of the countries that you just wouldn't want to miss, tell you the truth about it. i tell you something else I, I should mention here. It has some wonderful stories that uh, about things that have happened over there. And one of them I, I, I particularly want to get in this conversation somewhere. And I don't know whether you've ever heard of uh, the... Uh, the mystical character Preston John. Have you ever heard of him? No, but tell us. Okay, this Preston John was something that got started at about the uh, 11, 1200 in uh, uh, all over Europe. And what it was all about, there was this emperor, uh, a mystical now. This is a mystical emperor. He was never an emperor, but he was a, he was a mystic uh, figure. And one of the uh, queens over there, Queen Helen, I think your name was Queen Helen, uh, needed some help because the Muslims were beginning to encroach on the uh, Ethiopians, and, and they and they needed some help. So, some someone advised her to see if she couldn't get some help from a place like Portugal over there. I think Portugal was the one that. So she, she uh, concocted a letter. And, and and got that thing into uh, Europe, and it spread over Europe for two or three generations over there. And they talked about that thing. And to tell you the truth, it finally <laughs> it got bad enough that uh, I checked out on the Internet, and I put Preston John in there. And, and lo and behold, I find out that there was a book written about Preston John, and, and then that book was then made into a movie, and uh, but unfortunately, it wasn't the setting of the darn thing. wasn't in Ethiopia; it was in South Africa. But 
that Presto John thing went on for centuries over there. <laughs> and it, I got a copy of the letter that this Helen uh, wrote for Presto John. It wasn't written by any Presto John because Presto John didn't exist. But it, it was a, the most fabulous letter you have ever you've ever heard, the most outrageous thing you've ever heard. He uh, supposedly was the ruler over 70 other emperors scattered over seven, eight <laughs> different places so out throughout the world. And he even even had some of them as his body servants and that sort of thing. And then there was a, a, a device that they set out in front of the palace uh, that shared a light o- over throughout the throughout the empire, and so they could tell at any particular time what was going on anywhere in the empire. Then they had another little device that, uh, something that they had to put in the fire to clean it, and and, and when the, it was called a salamander of some kind. <laughs> anyway, it, there's some fabulous stories going, going on about Ethiopia, and I tried to, to mix in in with the history, you see, and try to pick up as many of these things as I could uh, get my hands on. And that Preston John story is fabulous when you read it. The title of the book is Life in Ethiopia, Historical and Religious Highlights of a 2,000-Year-Old African Dynasty. And the author is Job K. Savage. Job, tell us how to get your book. You can go to uh, Google, and it's on Google. And you can get it in any any bookstore. We appreciate you being with us, Joe. 96-year-old author, and doesn't sound like you're going to stop. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You make my day. <laughs> you Job, make my day. Job K. Savage, uh, author of his book, Life in, the, in Ethiopia. Thank okay. you, Joe. Thank you, and I enjoyed talking with you. you you're a good, you're good uh, questioner. <laughs> Enjoyed it very much.